0: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan and just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Also if you like what you hear in our two episodes a week uploaded on Mondays and Thursdays, please do tell all your friends and go to iTunes and write a review there explaining why we are your very favourite podcast and of course tell all your friends about it. Before we get on with the episode, we wanted to remind you that the Women's Podcast is partnering with Body and Soul Festival, Ireland's most beautiful festival, filled with three days of music, art, culture and well-being. Taking place on the summer solstice weekend, June 22nd to 24th, in Ballinlock Castle in Westmeath, 2018's edition includes Fever Ray, Chronics, Arca, John Hopkins, who is playing live, Iron and Wine, Baxter Jury and James Holden and the Animal Spirits. Head to bodyandsoul.ie to pick up a final tier ticket and be sure to check out the Irish Times programme on the Woodland stage taking place on Saturday afternoon. There are brilliant talks planned for Saturday, including a live recording of the women's podcast called The People Have Spoken, which will discuss life in Ireland post-referendum Ireland, which we are very nearly in. A bit more housekeeping. We are delighted to have two tickets to give away to a very special event that's happening in the RDS on Saturday. No, it's not the referendum count, but it's a conversation between Amanda Palmer and Laurie Penny. So if you'd like to go to that event and you're free on Saturday at 8pm, all you have to do is tell us your favourite feminist quote. Send it to us by email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we'll choose a winner for that event. And Amanda Palmer is going to be coming in to talk to us while she's in Dublin. So we look forward to that. And that event is part of the Dublin Literary Festival. Now, this is our Referendum Eve podcast. It's going to be a long one, but this is a momentous time in the lives of Irish women. So stick with us if you can. I'd like to mention, first of all, the editorial in today's Irish Times on the referendum, which stands for repeal. Just a little excerpt. To remove the eighth is merely to reflect the world we live in, a contingent, uncertain place full of messiness and ambiguity, where the distances between happiness and despair, public joy and private anguish are agonisingly small. We do recommend you read the whole piece. But we also have our own women's podcast editorial written by Tara Flynn. So listen up. Here she comes.
1: Everybody loves a happy ending. They're what we're fed when we're little to make growing up seem less scary. That, and to keep our noses to the grindstone. At the end of a quest or arduous task, there will surely be a reward. Maybe riches or love. Maybe finding our way home, only to realise that the bluebird of happiness was in our own backyard all along. Even though you don't normally get bluebirds in Ireland at this time of year. Annoyingly, as we age, experience cuts in to guide us around the dance floor of life. We'd really rather be twirling with innocence, with its super fresh moves to all the new tunes, but as experience steers us and dizziness fades, we gradually realise that happy endings aren't real. At best, they're a pleasant pause to catch our breath before we're off round the dance floor again. The dance floor of life is full of ups and downs the owner seem to have got in a dodgy contractor. It'll never double as a roller rink now, a significant blow to potential earnings and a lesson to us all not to cut corners. Over time, it dawns on us that the endings we've been sold mightn't actually be happy or might be happy for a minute and then change or might never arrive at all. The biggest realisation about happy endings is that one size doesn't fit all. What to me might be a wish granted, might be your idea of torture. What would make you lose your reason with delight might throw me into a pit of despair. For instance, I hate ribbons. Satiny, pretty, disgusting, horrific ribbons, without which, for some, presents or hairstyles are incomplete. I'm shrieking inside, even thinking about them. I'm shrieking a little aloud... If you give me a present with ribbons on, that is one clever move. That box I got on my birthday might be empty. I'll never know unless a bomb disposal squad can come and remove the hell streamers for me. My attic is full of unopened boxes and screams. Now, you might love ribbons. And who am I to judge? It just goes to show we're not all living the same story. We can't shove our favourite cake into someone's mouth no matter how much we enjoy it. What if they're allergic to gluten or fun? Our telling them that they're not won't change that. Even if the only reasons we gave them the cake was because we really love it and we wanted to share. Even if we mean well. Now these are frivolous examples but let's get serious for a sec. When we deny someone else the choice to make a difficult decision we might mean well. We might feel we're protecting them. We might feel we're giving them space to reflect. We might not want to see them denied something that makes us very happy indeed or that we hope will one day. But that's our story. It's not theirs. On May 25th, we get a chance to acknowledge that there is no generic happy ending, that what might be a fairy tale for us is someone else's horror story, that regardless of what we might do ourselves in a given situation for a million different reasons, someone else might not be able for. That those who can't travel and then lie to maintain Ireland's fairy tale image must not be the ones who are penalised. There can be no more grim tale than that of the combination of desperation and despair. When trapped, people will do whatever they have to. What of the tale of being forced to continue a pregnancy against your will? That doesn't sound magical to me. No amount of fairy dust can gloss over that. We cannot ascribe our wishes to others, even when we come from a place of goodwill. Instead of projecting, we must trust that others will weigh up the story unfolding for them in as serious and deeply considered a way as we would if it were our own. We must trust that only they are in a position to make such a truly momentous decision for themselves. The story we've been telling ourselves, that Ireland is abortion-free, is untrue. What scaremongering would have us believe will happen overnight should the Eighth Amendment be removed is already in our own backyard. Now we have a chance to make it safe. I can't live in a land of make-believe any longer. A dangerous land, even during continued pregnancy. And that's why I will be voting yes. There won't be any victory balls in the dance hall of life, but a wrong will have been put right. There might not be bluebirds, but those we've sent away will be welcomed home. And I think that would be a good start to a new chapter.
0: Now back to our Referendum Eve podcast, we have gathered three women in the studio to discuss the campaign so far. A campaign that has been deeply distressing for many women who have travelled for abortion, who have lost babies, who've been faced with tragic circumstances in pregnancy. It has divided the country, but in many ways it has been a very different conversation to the one that happened back in 1983, when the Eighth Amendment was inserted into the Irish Constitution, And that's because after women telling their stories, the Citizens' Assembly and the Eighth Committee and politicians coming out full force in support of the removal of the Eighth Amendment, the way we are talking about abortion and crisis pregnancies has changed. As much as there are pictures of foetuses and talk of stopping heartbeats, there has been much talk of care and compassion and the dignity and bodily autonomy of women. After tomorrow, it's entirely possible that the Eighth Amendment may be gone. So let's remind ourselves of that amendment. Article 43.3, known as the Eighth Amendment, was voted into the Irish Constitution by referendum in 1983, 35 years ago. The amendment states, the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable, by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. The amendment, therefore, equates the life of a pregnant woman with that of an embryo or fetus and has created an unworkable distinction between a pregnant woman's life and her health. With me today to discuss all of this is acclaimed American journalist, Katha Pollitt, who is here to cover the referendum for The Nation magazine. She's the author of Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights, We have the Master of the National Maternity Hospital, Rona Mahoney. And also with us is Professor Fiona DeLondres, an Irish academic and the Professor of Global Legal Studies at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Thank you all for being here. Rona, I'm going to start with
2: you. Why did you join together for Yes in the first place? Hmm. I suppose because I'm a practicing specialist in fetal and maternal medicine. So this is an area that impacts me all the time as I practice and I feel very strongly about it. Um, So why? What are the medical issues? So there's really fourfold. And the first is the requirement for there to be a real and substantial risk to a woman's life as opposed to her health before she qualifies for a termination of pregnancy. Now, this is no idle um, assertion. We are talking about not just a likelihood, but a really strong possibility that a woman will almost certainly die if we don't perform a termination of pregnancy. So in 21st century medicine in this country, a bar for women is death. That is totally unacceptable in how we practice. We have to mind women's health as well. We have women who will come with renal conditions, with diabetes, where the pregnancy will have a long-lasting impact on their quality of life and life and health, and yet we can't intervene in this instance. The other big thing for me is the fact that our medical system locks out 4,000 women every year who are either travelling to the UK or the approximate 1,500 women who are taking illegal tablets procured from God knows where through an internet source without any support or regulation and without all the assisted care in terms of talking about contraception, in talking about supporting them with sexual health. But our system actually locks these women out of our healthcare system, and that's a direct result um, of the Eighth Amendment. I'm also a fetal medicine specialist, so. When I break the news to a patient that their baby is not going to survive, um, I look them in the eye and that's it. I give them the practical information that their baby will likely not survive, the facts, the figures, and if they choose to travel... It's up to them to sort out their own appointments and to pay the thousands of euro that costs to go to a different jurisdiction. They're away from their family, away from their friends. And there is the incomplete medical transfer. So I can't remember a few years ago writing about this. and Somebody told me that their their files had to be sent to the Irish Family
0: Planning Association in, in order to be forwarded, which is a charity in order to be forwarded to the Liverpool Women's Hospital. Is that still
2: the case? But see, now women have their own notes, I suppose, to some extent, so they will have their own files. But at the same time, the least we would normally do in any normal medical situation is to make a referral and point out and highlight if there are other medical issues. Some of our women who are travelling have other medical issues, not just a complicated pregnancy. So it's just totally inappropriate. And then there's the lack of continuity of care. So a complex diagnosis made in one jurisdiction and a woman making her own arrangement to access health care at a different jurisdiction. And we have the heartbreaking stories then, you know, of women coming back. There's perhaps incomplete interrogations they can't afford a post-mortem. So really valuable information for future pregnancy is lost. And then we are there waiting at home for the fetal remains to be posted at home. That isn't care. Um, it really isn't. Um, and what's more, and I think what the, point that people miss is the criminalization of abortion. Our country says to those women, you know, you would be punishable by 14 years in jail in that context. And that is why women are travelling. So when people say to me, oh, no one's being locked up, you know, the point is every single day in our country, women are taking the plane or taking illegal tablets unsupervised because of the fear of a 14 year custodial sentence. So You know, I just don't accept that it's not having an impact just because someone hasn't been put in jail yet. The other big issue then, of course, is rape. And in this country at the moment, if a woman is raped, um, she either carries her pregnancy to term or she quietly takes herself again to a different jurisdiction, missing all of the support. And we know there is no test that tells us that a woman has been raped. There's just no way of finding it if you were so minded to do so. And we know that many women who are raped don't come forward for care. So, for women, for example, in very violent relationships, if they disclose, they're likely to experience worse violence. Children will have difficulty coming forward. Uh, sex workers who've been trafficked in to satisfy an Irish market will have great difficulty coming forward. And we know that what we see in the sexual assault treatment unit, you know, in our country is only a tiny proportion of what actually happens. Um, and we also understand how difficult it is uh, for women to come forward. And we also understand how difficult it is to legally uh, prove rape or to take on a case and, you know, while Belfast was a different jurisdiction, I think there were a lot of messages to women in this country. So, you know, there are very clear medical reasons why the Eighth Amendment is actually having a harmful effect um, on health care for women. But the most worrying thing for me is that it's not just about the so-called hard cases. These are real women. And it's just dreadful to dismiss the sort of cases that I see in my working life. But it's also the volume. 1,500 women taking tablets, you know, over the internet and 4,000 women locked out of our healthcare system. And I don't think any constitution in the world has such hypocrisy. I mean, when you consider the 13th Amendment, when 62% of our population voted effectively to introduce abortion in Ireland as long as we didn't have it in Ireland. And since then, we have been um, disregarding women and denying them proper access to healthcare. I think that needs to change and I hope it will change tomorrow Rona, one of the outstanding aspects of
0: this campaign and the various debates we've we've been watching is uh, the opposition of other obstetricians, gynecologists. How are you
2: ever going to work together again? Um, you know, I think that many of the obstetricians I work with who work in a tertiary hospital that's looking after the most complicated pregnancies and who are still actively working. um, I think you'll find and you will have seen actually the number of us coming out to speak. So it's not really a problem. And um, I think when you go back 30 years, it's fair to say that medicine was very different You know, we're now seeing women with corrected congenital heart disease, women with cystic fibrosis, women with renal disease coming to pregnancy who would never have achieved pregnancy in the past. We're seeing a very much older cohort of women, a much more complex cohort of women now who have real challenges. So I think we need to hear... From the people who actually practice and particularly the people who are practicing in hospitals like mine, where we're having cases referred from all over the country. And we've heard a little bit from people in smaller units who have the option to transfer patients up to the tertiary centres. Like but the gentleman
0: from Kinkenny who was going to phone a friend if he had if he felt there might be problems.
2: That's you know, so I think In a tertiary setting like mine where we see the complicated cases, I have to put my hand in my heart and tell you that we see women in really very difficult circumstances where there is risk to health. And, you know, we perform, you know, about five terminations a year in my hospital because we think women will die otherwise. Um, So it's real. And you might say that's not a large number. For those women, that's an enormous um, impact for them. But if they were all to die that would be an enormous impact on our maternal mortality. So I really do not accept this dismissal of cases, um, but I really don't accept the requirement nowadays for a woman to be seriously at risk of dying before we can intervene and offer her sensible health care. Women and their doctors need to look at her whole clinical picture um, and discuss what is the right option for her at that particular time in her life. I think women deserve that, and I think women should have much more input um, into these decisions. Um, I think the classic example for us is the ruptured membrane. This is a similar case to the halopanivir case. Um, And this is where very early in a pregnancy, the waters around the baby break. um, And as a result, the baby's lungs will not develop. So even if the pregnancy continues to 37 weeks, that baby will not survive because the baby's lungs won't develop because the critical stage of lung development is between 16 and 24 weeks. And babies require to breathe like her through their lungs for that to happen. But what is a likelihood in these cases is a woman developing infection or chorioamnionitis, And we have to wait in this circumstance. And we have several cases every year where we know that it's very unlikely we will have a viable baby at the end of this pregnancy, but it is very likely that we will see infection. And so for weeks... And weeks we monitor a woman for infection and then we have to hope that when there are clinical signs of infection which are pretty crude so you're looking at high temperature high pulse rate and um, that this we will be able to intervene in time because actually it takes a little time to uh, terminate or interrupt a pregnancy you know you've got to give medication and it takes time but I've seen women sitting looking at me well at nine o'clock in the morning you know maybe a bit of a low-grade temperature and then by lunchtime they're moribund and now you're trying to um, you know, have a medical procedure in a very narrow therapeutic window. Now, Rona, this if, is really not
0: right. If if if, if our, our opposition obstetrician was sitting here, he would say, well, we have the safest rate in the world or one of the safest rates in the world. That woman obviously really didn't die because the stats don't show that there are many deaths every year from sepsis and that sort of thing.
2: We have five terminations a year in this context in Hollis Street roughly because we believe these women would die Otherwise, we have termination of pregnancy in Ireland. So women with comorbidities are travelling and they're having termination. So the idea that we're having a conversation to say that Ireland is the safest country because we don't have abortion. I think we've got over that argument. I think everyone understands in Ireland that about 4,000 women terminate their pregnancies every year. Um, And if we didn't, I mean, I think it's very interesting. What if we didn't? have that access to termination of pregnancy. I mean, what if the logical conclusion of retaining the Eighth Amendment tomorrow was to say, well, we're retaining this to prevent termination of pregnancy? Will we now remove the 13th Amendment and say women can't travel anymore? We would have a very different conversation um, in relation to health care and in relation to risk.
0: Rona, as a woman, as a mother, uh, apart from your profession... Um, Have you had a journey on this at all? There's been lots of people talking about their journeys throughout Mm. this
2: campaign, indeed, for years. Have you had one of those or did you start out? I started out at 11, in 1983. I remember very well in my school, um, you know, the whole debate at the time and um, even this whole concept of sort of, you know, the baby and the mother and the equal rights and the complication of all of this. So I understood from an early age, this was a complicated issue, I suppose, but it was well debated even at the age of 11. But no, I've never had any doubt in terms of promoting women's health. And, And I have always felt that the Eighth Amendment is very flawed. It was put into the Constitution when you go back to the history of it, in order to prevent termination of pregnancy following the invocation of privacy um, issues that arose in both the Rowan Wade case and Hannah versus McGee versus the Attorney General. So um, it was put in the constitution for a reason, but the whole thing centres on viability of the baby. We are assuming in the constitution that we can reduce a whole manner of clinical risk into a matter of right. So if the law deals with rights, medicine deals with risks. The constitution presumes that we can reduce a whole range of medical disorder into a matter of right. After fetal viability, which at the moment is around 24 weeks gestation, we can begin to balance that for sure. And we do that all the time. So we have about 6% of births in Ireland are what we call preterm birth. That's because there's either complication in the baby or the mum that says we're better off to deliver now and we can save both lives. Prior to fetal viability, we can't deliver the baby and um, because the baby won't survive at the moment. Um, but if a mother dies, her baby dies too. So we have a physiological complete, you know, codependency but at the same time we are pitting the rights of the baby against the rights of the mother, which is completely not what pregnancy is about. But I think it's deeply flawed and, and it absolutely restricts our ability to provide legislation that actually deals with the reality of the complications of pregnancy and the complications of um, maternal disease facing into pregnancy, Um, and therefore it stymies us from the flexibility required to make sensible healthcare decisions. And, you know, if you go back to the X case, you know, almost certainly that insertion in the constitution was always going to cause a clinical problem. You were always going to reach that time when um, you know the rights of the mother and baby were going to collide to some extent. And so in the X case, we had a 14-year-old girl who'd been raped by somebody she knew um, and was suicidal and um, wanted to terminate her pregnancy. And what Ireland said to her in the High Court was that if a termination happens, we will definitely lose the baby, but this 14-year-old might not commit suicide. So let's take a chance on the 14-year-old girl who's been raped and is suicidal because you know what, she mightn't actually kill herself. And that is an extraordinary message to women. And obviously that went to the Supreme Court and that's where we got the judgment that the test in the High Court case was wrong, but that what is now required, and I come back to it the whole time, is a real and substantial risk to life as distinct from health and that's very important. So we really mean death. We're serious about it in our constitution. That is the law at the moment. And that is an extraordinary bar in 21st century medicine. Now, I'm letting Katha
0: Pollitt listen to all this before I speak to her, because I know she's been around Ireland for several days and indeed has visited it before. So she's a pretty good overview. But nonetheless, I'm going to turn to Professor Fiona de Londres, who I'm delighted to have here this morning. Fiona, you have been around this country probably maybe dozens of times at this Mm -hmm. stage. You've stood at stalls and stands and handed out leaflets and canvas and also put forward your exceptionally clear interpretation of the law here to make it accessible to lay people. Now, everything Rona says to most people listening to this podcast will sound like absolute common sense. What is so intractable about this, legally?
3: Mm, Well, the, the first thing to say is actually it is pretty extraordinary to hear a doctor have to be so fluent in constitutional law I mean, I don't mean that in a sort of a facetious way. I should know nothing about medicine and Rona should know nothing about the Constitution. Right. So this is it, it actually just illustrates the exceptionality um, of the situation that we're in that she can quote with absolute accuracy. The judgment on, I think, page 54 of X real and substantial risk to the life as distinct from the health of the mother, and the second part of the test, of course, is that termination of the pregnancy is the only way to avert that risk. So, in fact, think about the highest constitutional bar you can imagine. So, what is in? Why is it so intractable? In a way, it's intractable at the moment because it's in the constitution. So, this is the implication of putting something into the constitution: is that you create these this series of locks. Before you can change anything, you have to unlock. So many things you have to unlock politics so that politics will agree we can have a referendum, and then you have to unlock the polity so that the polity will vote for the proposition in the referendum being the people the people, yes, the electorate, sorry and um, so uh, and and I think this is actually a serious point because this isn't an accident. The Eighth Amendment was a preemptive strike against women's liberation in this country. It was put in at a time. When abortion was illegal, some people were calling for the legalisation of abortion, but there wasn't a big, you know, a substantial public movement. No politician, hardly a handful of politicians thought that maybe we should legalise it or, or legislate for it in any kind of situation. So there's no doubt whatsoever this was put in in order to ensure that even when politics changed even when medicine changed, even when reality changed, even when social morals, morality changed, it would be as hard as it could possibly be to ever unlock that constitutional provision, which is exactly what we're finding now. So it's, uh, in many ways, a very clever piece of lawyering to design this and to put it into the Constitution. So that's the first reason why it's intractable, is that it's in the Constitution in the first place. And the second source of intractability is the wording. It is that equality between the fetal right to life and the right to life of a pregnant woman and the obligation that that places on the state. So everybody, most people, know the first sort of phrase that the state recognises the right to life of the unborn with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, as the Constitution puts it. But we also have to remember the next part of the article, which pledges the state by its laws to defend and as far as practicable to uh, vindicate, it's not exactly the wording, vindicate the rights of the unborn. And that means actually the state has to intervene in every pregnancy. So why can Rona not refer her patients to a hospital in the UK? Because it's a crime. It's a crime. Why is it a crime? Because the state must defend and vindicate the right to life of the unborn. Why can we not get information about abortion without also getting information about parenting and adoption, even if you have a fatal diagnosis, even if you have a fatal diagnosis? Because the law requires it to defend and vindicate the right to life of the unborn. Why can a pregnant woman, why is a pregnant woman the only adult with capacity who cannot withdraw or refuse her consent to a treatment if it endangers the fetus? Because the state is obliged to defend and vindicate the right to life of the unborn. So the equality of rights in the way it's constructed in Article 40.33 creates this adversarial relationship between the pregnant woman and the baby and the obligation on the state then puts the power of the state on the side of the fetus and it tells the state that our only obligation is to make sure at the end of pregnancy that woman is alive. That's it. Now, Fiona,
0: so you've been out and about and you've heard the polity speaking. (coughs) uh, When they answer you by saying, but that's a human life, Mm. what do you say?
3: Oh, I agree. Certainly, it is a potential human life. um, And I think that most people, in fact, I think probably everybody agrees with that. But that doesn't answer our questions, actually. Because we have to ask whether it is precisely the same in its moral ethical and legal value as the human life on which it is completely dependent. And so what's interesting, I think, about the law that this government has proposed, if we vote yes tomorrow, is that it recognises the sort of developing uh, moral and legal status of the fetus. So up to 12 weeks The state will say we're going to support people in making decisions by having this regulated system with your GP and your three day waiting period and all the rest of it. But actually, at 12 weeks, we think the fetus has a really strong moral and legal standing. And we're going to step in and we're going to say, actually, abortion now will only be lawful in what really are going to be catastrophic situations. It has no, no resemblance to the UK test at all risk to life or risk of serious harm to health certified by two doctors, one of whom has to be an obstetrician and also a level of senior oversight that doesn't exist in the UK up to viability. And then after viability, no abortion at all. So the, st- the proposed law recognises the humanity of the fetus <laughs> by saying that after 12 weeks, we step in and we protect that fetal life. And remember, if this new law is brought in every, and this is different to now, Every woman in this country who is still pregnant after 12 weeks has chosen to be pregnant because she's had 12 weeks of protected period when she could choose to enter pregnancy. And so we're ta- we are talking here about situations of really catastrophic ill health when all we're saying is now, now the law should say this is your risk. Do you want to take it? Because right now the law says you have to take this risk.
0: Fiona, just clarify for us one more time. In the first three months, a woman who wants an abortion, what does she have to do?
3: So up to 12 weeks um, since the first day of your last period, so 12 weeks pregnancy, you would go to your doctor, uh, whichever GP closest to you, I assume, is willing to provide abortion care. And you would say that you want to end your pregnancy. The role of the doctor under the legislation so the doctor has a certification role and that role is to certify how advanced the pregnancy is the doctor will have to certify that in three days time that pregnancy will still be under 12 weeks and if that's the case she'll have to take a waiting period of three days and after those three days or on day four or five or six or whatever up to the end of the 12th week if she still wants to she'll be allowed to have an abortion now the so the legal obligation on the doctor it would under the proposal just be to certify gestation but this is being misrepresented in my view as the only thing the doctor would then do so a doctor th- there's a difference between saying a doctor doesn't have to certify that your reason is good enough and saying a doctor doesn't have to ask you about your reasons just think about when you go into your gp You know, of course your doctor will say, do you want to talk about why you want to end this pregnancy? Do you want to talk about the options? What are you worried about? Are you sure? You know, are you sure? How sure are you? How much time do you need? Who do you need to talk to? What do you need? That is support. That is what doctors do and will do because it's what doctors always do. Um, But the doctor, the law will not say to a doctor, and once you've had that conversation with with your patient, you now need to certify as a matter of law that her reason is good enough. So we're not saying, say, you talk to your patient, you support your patient. And for me, this is really important because we're moving from a situation where we say, in pregnancy, the role of the law is to keep a woman pregnant to saying, in pregnancy, the role of the law is to support good medical care.
0: Fiona, we saw a guy, a GP, on one debate Uh, one infamous debate um, who said that not alone would he not certify anything but he would not refer the woman to another
3: uh, more quote sympathetic doctor. Is he allowed to do that? Uh, Under the proposed law which in this respect is exactly the same as the current law the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act a doctor will be permitted to opt out but required to refer. There isn't any other way to make conscientious objection work because conscientious objection is tricky you have two important things you have a patient who needs medical treatment and you have a doctor who has a conscientious objection to that medical treatment and so the way you balance it is you say okay you don't have to participate directly but you can't abandon your patient you know what do we expect women to schlep from surgery to surgery to surgery until they find a doctor Who would provide them with the treatment? Of course not. And this is exactly the same as under the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act. So let's be very clear. What doctors who say that have a problem with is not the obligation to refer. It is the abortion. Because now they'll refer because they think that if a woman will die without it, then the treatment is not abortion. It's a treatment for the woman which has an unintentional side effect. This is why they keep saying look at how it's the de- termination of pregnancy is defined in the proposed law the intentional a medical procedure intended to end fetal life because for people who hold that conscientious position the treatment available under the protection of life during pregnancy act doesn't it doesn't have the moral status of an abortion it is a treatment that happens to end fetal life do you see what i mean in terms mm-hmm. of the distinction so this is these doctors don't actually have a problem with the principle of referral. They have a problem with the care that their patients want.
0: Can they be referred to the medical council? I mean, do you, do, you, do you foresee things happening there that might go badly for some of them?
3: I, I assume, now I, I'm not a medical lawyer, but I assume that if there is a statutory obligation on a doctor and the doctor fails to fulfil it, the normal course of events would be engagement with the Medical Council. Would that be right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think ultimately,
2: and patients will find their way as well to some extent. um, But I do think that people will refer at the end of the day, doctors are pretty law abiding, you know, we will obey the law. And the fact that we are law abiding is why we have the chilling effect of mm-hmm. the um, Eighth Amendment. And I can't emphasise enough You're making complex medical decisions in the shadow of a 14 year prison sentence and both for the woman and for yourself. I mean, what sort of message is that to women? And, you know, we will allow a termination if you're going to die otherwise. But after that, actually, what you're doing is punishable by 14 years in jail. I mean, are you really going to say to a woman who has a termination in the context of a fatal fetal abnormality, you deserve to be punished by 14 years in jail. But that's what we're saying. Do we say to a woman who's been raped, a child who's been raped, you deserve 14 years in jail? I mean, this is the message that we're giving to women. And the other big issue really is that, you know, all over the world, we have very good data on what happens when you criminalise and when you restrict termination of pregnancy. It doesn't stop it but it makes it more dangerous and it makes it more unsafe. And we have lots of statements from the UN, from the Guttmacher Institute. There's very good research on that. About 47,000 women roughly die every year in the world because of complication um, of backstreet abortion or illegal abortion. So, you know, and, and very often what you see actually is the combination in a country where there is no or very restrictive termination of pregnancy. But equally, there's no good advice on contraception and there's no good support in general in terms of reproductive health. And then when you go to countries which actually engage with this topic, you find that actually you have lower rates of termination of pregnancy because you have a very good health education program and you have very good availability of contraception. I think that's a big part of this debate as well is that we need to really develop very good strategies that will help prevent women coming to the situation where they desperately require um, a termination of pregnancy for whatever reason. Katha, yeah.
0: Katha Pollard, we're delighted to have you here and I would like to know what you think of all this.
4: <laughs> what a big question. Um, <laughs> it's been fascinating to, I came on Saturday and I've been – I've canvassed. I've handed out leaflets or shadowed people who've done these things, I should say. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people. And, you know, I, I have uh, several reflections. One is I'm actually quite impressed by the uh, the way people seem to be thinking about this all very carefully. Um, when I shadowed a canvasser, we, we went door to door in um, Donnybrook. And, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people who didn't want to talk to us and a lot of people, I think they were home and they, you know, weren't <laughs> answering the which I can't really blame them for it. Um But we've found several people who were tortured by their decision, just tortured. We talked to one woman who um, – she says, well, I just don't know and I-, I don't know. I've been talking about it with my sister and I had breast cancer. I don't even know if I can have a baby and uh, she – you know told us a lot actually about her life which is kind of unusual because we're total strangers to her and you one felt great sympathy but then she said something that i think is very important not just about the discussion here but uh but in the united states as well whereas you know we're having a huge uh, kerfuffle about abortion ongoing for many years um and she said well No, I I get it about the hard cases and rape and incest and life of the health of the mother, all that. But I just don't like the idea of these 16- or 17-year-old girls running around. And that when you talk to people long enough, it often turns out that their fear is not so much about the life of the fetus. Because if they – if that was their interest, then they couldn't support uh, abortion for rape victims. They'd have to say, no, we have to love them both, care, uh, you know – protection, but in the end, uh, as a taxi driver said to me this morning, I'm for the underdog. <laughs> I said, so who is the underdog? He said, oh, it's the unborn. But anyway, uh, so this woman, uh, like many other people I've talked to, is, I think, worried about uh, social change, worried that, uh, you know, there's – or as another taxi driver said to me, women will go to clubs and have sex, sex, sex. <laughs> And I said, Well is that so terrible? <laughs> you know, yes, that is so terrible. Uh so I think there there's um there's that going on. And then Do you think how that it hit the nail of
0: the head there? Is mm-hmm. that actually what this is about?
4: I think it is. I think it is. Um, I think that uh, one argument – I'm always sort of coming up with these arguments that I think are going to just persuade everybody and then it's explained to me that actually no. <laughs> <And> <laughs> That's your value too it today. <laughs> actually, no. So I said, well, what about – I said to a no voter, well, what about – I mean uh, the idea, the argument I think is very effective that in uh, the 12 weeks is actually in line – with other European countries that we don't think of as dens of iniquity like Austria or Spain, you know, Catholic countries. Uh, if people knew, if people knew uh, more about what's going on in Europe, what the laws were, would they feel better about it? And he says to me, no, nobody here cares what happens in Austria. <laughs> uh, and he said it more obscenely than that, but I'm <laughs> paraphrasing. Uh, so I just think— you know, it does bring the the new law, if it's passed, which, you know, it might not be, uh, would bring uh, Ireland in line with Europe. Um, and so when people say, oh, the UK, they talk about the UK as if all people do there is have abortions and give abortions. Um, and they're very, you know, the idea that the UK is a very um, – a very um, profligate and immoral place, but Ireland really is more like Austria. It's it's a small, cohesive country that uh, it, it's not like a major industrial powerhouse like like the UK, where um, morals are different. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think the UK is a good comparison, but that's the one everybody makes yes we, we we
0: actually have stopped comparing ourselves to the UK in many ways in recent mm-hmm. years that's been one of the value of this one of the values of this campaign actually mm-hmm. uh, because of their brexit politics and we're suddenly not the great friends we were a few years ago so that helps um because what what, what are your observations of this campaign in terms of the postering mm-hmm. the gatherings the the rival groups almost well, meeting
4: uh, my stepdaughter uh, teaches at Trinity so she lives here. And she has been telling me, you know, the posters, It's you see the no posters everywhere and you don't see so many yes posters. And I found that's a little bit true. Um, and sometimes what you see is a whole long sort of totem pole of posters with yes, no, yes, no, uh, which is interesting. And I have noticed the posters are different, that the, uh, the no posters, you know, there's the fetus. Or maybe a fireman rescuing a baby. The fireman, yes. Uh, Maybe a mother with a child and you're thinking, well, you know, this really is kind of irrelevant here. Um, But they're much more an appeal to an emotion, much more an appeal to a set of nostalgic values or maybe idealized values. Um, I mean that a man is represented by a fireman. I mean that that's the role of men is to rescue children. It sounds almost American it Katha is American. It. This is so terrible. People say to me, oh, yeah, this comes from America. <laughs> All this money is coming from America. Um, people are coming from America. And um, I'm very – I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Well, an um, apology isn't
0: enough. We'd like you to do more. Actually. Uh, well, I'm here. Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, true. I'm um, doing
4: what I can. Um, yeah, uh, America has, as you probably know, an extremely aggressive – anti-choice, quote, pro-life, unquote, movement. Uh, And interestingly, it it comes from the Catholic Church, but it even more comes from evangelical Protestantism. They're the ones that are just really, uh, you know, all anti-abortion all the time. Um, And that really is the sum of their politics right now. And and
0: and, and that is gearing up, isn't it, Catherine? I mean, I saw a report in the Guardian yesterday. I think you also read it about about Iowa.
4: Oh, this is so terrible! But this is, you know, since in the last, you know, three or four years, there have been hundreds of laws passed in the states, uh, in the different states. I mean, um, because abortion is largely a matter of state regulation of individual states, Um, hundreds of laws. Uh, restricting abortion, making it harder. Um, you know, the time, the the waiting period, uh, there was a whole bogus set of laws, which we call trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion provision, which are aimed at shutting down clinics by saying, oh, and you're, um, you have to have every facility that a, a hospital would have. Um, you have to have halls that are, you know, Uh, 12 feet wide or I mean I don't know exactly how many feet it is but more feet than a normal hall would have Um, and denying that a doctor can't practice in an abortion clinic unless he has hospital admitting privileges which the hospital, which is a Catholic hospital, will not give him. Um, So there's those laws. That particular set of laws was uh, overturned by the Supreme Court but there are others and it's just shocking and most recently we have Iowa with a ban on abortion – Uh, signed by the governor, um, that you can't have abortions after, is it six weeks? I mean, it's unbelievable. After the first heartbeat is is detected. Yeah, so uh, these heartbeat bills are going around the country too. Um, And they have an effect, even if they get rejected by the legislature, which is to move the debate over toward the anti-abortion, anti-choice end of things That's like oh john kasich who ran uh, is the governor of ohio and uh, ran for president in the last uh, prime republican primary and he didn't do very well uh cuz he's not sufficiently uh, obnoxious i think uh but anyway uh so he rejected a very harsh abortion bill and that has the effect of saying oh see they rejected that harsh abortion bill well what about this one over here that doesn't look so harsh anymore so that's what it does um And there are now six or seven states, um, maybe eight now with Iowa, where there's only one clinic. Um, and American states are enormous. Um, so it's not like only have, you know, people like to compare, uh, well, an anti-choice writer for the New York Times said, well, what if Texas did put in this whole set of laws they wanted to do a couple of years ago? That would just make Texas like France. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, Texas is just like France. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. In France, you can get an abortion at any hospital, any hospital. France is a cohesive – I mean it's a big country but it has an excellent public transportation system which Texas does not have. In Texas, you are driving in your car hundreds of miles and then you have a waiting period and then, you know, to the few clinics that are left. And if you are, say, an illegal immigrant, um, you can be stopped. Your car driving to the clinic hundreds of miles can be stopped. Um, and your papers can be checked. So it's a very frightening situation. And that's why a lot of women now in, in parts of Texas that are far from clinics are taking, uh, are taking abortion pills that they get off the internet or through networks of friends. Um, so uh, I think America's situation is really a warning for uh, the rest of the world <laughs> because the anti-abortion movement, it's, a, it's an international movement. And that's
0: what we have here Mm -hmm. now in these last few weeks, in particular, Katha. There are a lot of American accents around. Um, You have no insights into that, I presume, as to how... And they are deeply aggressive. I know people who were in O'Connell Street last night, for example, and who were very taken aback by how physically aggressive some of these young people were. Is that typical of what's going on?
4: There is that. Um, You know, there is a a thing that goes on at clinics... Uh, abortion clinics in the United States where they will be, there are people standing anti-abortion people standing outside these clinics shouting through a bullhorn um, sort of mobbing the clinics trying to uh, harass the patients taking pictures of patients, taking pictures of license plates of, of patients uh, there are, I mean there have been people who have been murdered in America as you know uh, and you know uh, people in the waiting room, receptionists, uh, some doctors too. Um, it's a very frightening situation, and I have to say, the courts. It's funny because the courts. By the time, I mean, I'm sure you know Fiona and and Rona understand all this. By the time something gets to a court, it's been very drained of its blood. You know, it's it it isn't. You know, and this horrible woman came up and humiliated me while I was on my way to the clinic. It'll be and. A sidewalk counselor tried to give me a leaflet. To, you know, I, I, the sidewalk counselor, tried to give this poor woman a leaflet and this is part of my freedom of speech. And that's what the court will be deciding on. I don't think they understand how um, deeply aggressive and quasi-violent these situations can be.
0: Now, Catherine, you've literally written the book on this uh, about abortion rights so. in the States Ooh. called Pro. I mean, at the base of all this, apart from the fear of, of, of young sexuality and that sort of thing, is, is, there, is there stark misogyny at the heart of it?
4: Well, I think there is. I think there is. You know, it's – I think that – well, for example, take the Irish news these days, which I've been reading the papers here. Okay, so we have these two horrible murders – of, of young women that are in the paper all the time. We have um, this discussion with people saying the most sort of awful things about women and what they're likely to do. Um, we have the cervical check scandal um, that's in the news all the time. And I think that if you just look at what is happening, and it, it, Ireland is not unusual, you could go to any country and there would be major, major news stories that are about the degradation and uh, violence against women. Um, and I think that the abortion stuff fits right into there because it basically is saying you're a vessel, you're a fetal vessel. It doesn't matter how you got pregnant unless you can prove rape, which is very hard to do, as we saw in Northern Ireland, um, and certainly very hard to do in the time frame of a pregnancy. Um, so I think that it really is you're a vessel, you should accept your female physical role as a container for a fetus. And that's why you're here. Um, Katha, one
0: of one of the favorite quotes of a certain person in the studio, um, and I'm going to read it out It's from your book. We don't like the idea that a man might be severely constrained for life by a single ejaculation. He has places to go and things to do. That a woman's life may be stunted by unwanted childbearing is not so troubling. Childbearing, after all, is what women are for.
4: Yeah. I think this you know, the the people say, you know, oh men, they're not gonna vote and they the men say, you oh, know, what does this have to do with me? And you're thinking, well, someone needs to explain the facts of life to you, you know. <coughs> but I think that's very much part of it, that you know, nobody is saying, for example, yes, if a man fathers a child, he has to give fifty percent of his income and, you know, twenty hours a week to to raising that child. Nobody says that. He can just go off. He might have to pay a little child support, but maybe not. But I think that the idea that a woman's entire life should be shaped by an accidental pregnancy is something that apparently a lot of people can live with.
0: Kathy, you're here to write for a magazine. I Which am. One?
4: I write, I'm a writer for The Nation magazine in New York. A um, highly f- respected magazine, let me say. Oh, I'm going to tell them you said that. <laughs> <laughs> They're always
0: writing to me. (laughs) Uh, And my my
4: first piece uh, went up on – I think it it goes up today on the website at www.thenation.com where I talk, uh, if I can just go on for a little bit, about the specter of Brexit and Trump. This is a very interesting thing is the fear that there's another – electorate out there that we just haven't really paid attention to because we live in a bubble and or just because they've been very quiet <laughs> um and uh this is something that you know Americans are now very awake to I mean you can't open a newspaper in America without reading about Trump voters and or do they still like Trump and of course they do <laughs> they do um so I think that it's there's a, there's some stuff in here to unpack about about the nature of the electorate and who who we find out, who who gets to speak and who is keeping their counsel until the last minute.
0: What's your sense of that, Katha?
4: Well, I haven't met a single person, and I've asked everyone I've met uh, how the vote's going to go. I haven't met a single person who says it's going to be a no. You just wait. Even the no people I've met said it's going to be yes. So, is that
0: your sense of it?
4: Well... I'm just going by what people tell me. Uh, I've met a lot of no voters, um, especially in taxi cabs, I'm sorry to say. The taxi drivers of, <laughs> of well, Dublin are... Yeah, the voice of a nation in one uh, sense. Right. <laughs> uh, I was so happy when I I got into a cab today and we got to talk about the death of Philip Roth. And, the taxi driver know, discussed how, the death of Philip yes, Roth. Yes, and him. how nobody really can read Finnegan's Wake. And <laughs> Then I thought, oh, I have to ask him. <laughs>
0: I hope um, you put that in the magazine article. Well, that our taxi drivers are <laughs> great um, literary. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put. I'm going to be sure to put that in. But I'm I'm hoping for the best. I'm fearing for the worst. I mean, what can you say? Um, the science of pol- pol- polling is an inexact science.
0: Have you plans to to, to watch the count somewhere?
4: Yes, I'm going to be at. I don't really understand how it goes, but apparently on Saturday morning you go someplace and watch the tally. And I'm going to be doing that. And I have to say one thing that's very surprising to me is in New York, I mean, in in the United States, we're very used to voting ends. You watch on television and within an hour or two, you know, sometimes even sooner. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you vote and then there's a whole other night that you have to worry. (laughs) Then you get up and it's a whole day where where they're counting the votes. This is agony to me.
0: (laughs) You see, we think it's a huge part of our democracy that Uh it really engages people. Uh It becomes a blood sport at that point. Uh And we see the winners and the losers close up on television. In fact, the first time, Katha, we tried electronic voting, one of the candidates actually fainted. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, she was was the front runner and she fainted. She simply (laughs) fell over and after that we had to reconsider the whole thing also I think we win because nobody can interfere with our voting system
4: well that is a great thing you still use paper ballots we do well that's very wise yeah we win don't (laughs) ever change
0: Fiona where are you going to be?
3: I am going to
4: be schlepping
3: around from uh, count centre to count centre I think I'll probably start in City West in the morning and then go to the RDS for a while um, and hopefully finish up in Dublin Castle on Saturday what's your sense of it all? Um, I do think uh, I don't think that there is a sort of Brexit Trump type situation likely here. But what I find intriguing is that the ways in which the retain the no campaign have tried to construct the debate and tried to construct the discourse, including through their posters, is to try to generate that form. Of vote. You know, there are even, I don't know if this is the official campaign or not, it may not be, but there are, uh, I'm from Dundrum County Tipperary and there's a big billboard in Cashel. That's where it's like, there is no more rural
0: place. It's very yeah. rural. And it's very rural. And, <coughs> and inside You'll never in, find it. No,
3: inside <laughs> in Cashel, there was an enormous billboard and it was like, uh, join the revolution, vote no, right? This sort of thing, which is, which is really intriguing. But I actually don't think people are, um, are, are engaging in it in that way. I think people are, and have been thinking extremely seriously about it and ultimately I think people know life is hard don't they? Life is hard and sometimes things go a bit wrong and we pride ourselves on being a loving caring country we have built the UK up to be, I don't know what people think. I live in the UK and I don't know what people think it is from this debate or some people want to present it as. But the reality is that for 35 years, you know, people, the Irish diaspora in the UK and British taxi drivers and doctors and nurses have taken the phone calls, met people at the airports, wiped the tears, given people our beds and warm dinners and hot water bottles and taken care of them. And actually, I think here we feel like uh, you know, now back at home, people feel like, really we should just do that, shouldn't we? We really should just open our arms and wrap people up in them and say, I know actually this is hard and let's just give you a hand with this, a real hand. You know, let's take the law out of it to some extent. Let's let you make your decision with your doctor and let's put these decisions really back where they belong, first of all in the houses of the Euroctus, secondly in your GP surgery, but most importantly. At home, at your dinner table, in your bed, wherever you have your conversations with people who care about you and who you care about in your life. And we all know the only way we can really do that is to vote yes. So I think ultimately that's what will happen. Rona, oh, no. where are
0: you going to watch this? Are you going to be delivering babies? Um,
2: well, I could be. There'll be 25 probably on Saturday like any other day. Um, I think But on the next day. Uh, <laughs> I think there'll be still 25. Don't worry. Um, there's been 25 for a long time now. Um, but no, I think what's interesting about this whole conversation, if we call it that, rather than a debate, has been the number of women who have come out with their personal testament and also the number of doctors who have come out, I suppose, to describe their experience as well. So for me, a no vote would be really turning our back as a country on the stories that we have heard. Not just heard, because we all probably know someone who's had a termination of pregnancy. Um, you know, it's five, four thousand women every year. Um, and we've heard a lot of these stories and um, quietly as well as on the radio. And for me, the difficulty would be if there was a no vote, we would be continuing the status quo so we would say it's fine to send women with a fatal fetal anomaly to England away from the jurisdiction we know it's happening we really do know now mm-hmm. but actually that's fine it would be fine to allow 1500 of our young women to take illegal tablets unsupported unsupervised with no appropriate medical care or even conversation about their options or conversation about contraception or conversation about their health It would be fine to continue to require women to be dying before we intervene and not to allow women make self safe health care choices. So for women with intercurrent diseases, I've said, with renal disease, diabetes, not to be able to make those decisions unless they're dying. And again, to say to women who've been raped or children who've been raped, you must still continue your pregnancy to term unless you're prepared to travel. The result of the Eighth Amendment is that 4,000 women are locked out of our health system. And that, to me, is what bothers me more than anything, that our health system is saying to them, "Um, travel, be illegal, do whatever you like, but we're not going to care for you. And that just goes against... The whole concept of safe health care, particularly when we understand international example and how we understand that when you criminalize abortion, as we do in Ireland, that you make it more dangerous. And um, I also think, you know, I love history, but it's been such a story of incarceration for women with unwanted pregnancies. So we go back to, you know, the, when our free state started in 1922 in such poverty and how women killed their babies in appeal. What else could I do? Because she was prosecuted for killing her son because she couldn't care for him. And there were several hundred cases went through the courts in the first half of the century in our country. And we don't talk about it. Lena Ratkin's work is extraordinary in that regard. The women who had babies outside of wedlock, where were the men who were so interested? Perhaps um, some of them in this the case, men? where were the men? Women were incarcerated um, and taken out of there and parents sent their children to be incarcerated um, in, in, in terrible circumstance. And now we have the threat of incarceration all the time, the 14-year custodial sentence for women and for their doctors. In really complex medical scenarios and really tragic scenarios, we still have this threat of being locked up. And of course, there's different types of incarceration. We're locking women out. you know. And when people say, OK, no one's being prosecuted, we might not be locking women up in jail every day, but we're locking them out of our health care And we're locking them out of our consciousness to some extent. Um, And also there's the incarceration of our judgment, how we judge people. And, you know, we were just having a conversation earlier. I remember being in the Rock this in 2013 and I was being told by people that women all over Ireland would suddenly become suicidal just so that they could, you know, present themselves to have a termination of pregnancy. I mean, the deep misogyny um, in that and even this whole concept of, um, you know, um, abortion on demand. I mean, the deep misogyny, in that language, deserves to be checked. No woman wants to have a termination of pregnancy, but some women, for all the different reasons that happen in life, actually require and are so desperate that is the option for them. Kath, I'll come back to you
0: about what this vote means tomorrow. It means something well beyond abortion. It It means a lot for all women in this country, whatever side of the fence they're on. But also, in particular, for young women of childbearing age, it are, you know, are they part of this, this polity, as Fiona puts it? Will they feel rejected if this is a no vote? And why would they feel rejected?
4: I think you would have to feel rejected if the country goes to the polls after quite a long period of discussion and uh, reflection um, and says, no, you have to have that baby. We don't really care about the circumstances. you got to have that baby. And I think that it sends a very powerful message to women that whatever else you're doing, whatever your life plans are, that, that's not so important. You know, maybe you want to be a doctor, maybe you want to wait before you have kids, maybe you have enough kids, because let's not forget, you know, we talk about young women all the time, but the majority of women who have abortions, Irish women who have abortions, are already mothers, and that's true in the United States as well. So that's really saying we don't care about what your difficulties are. We don't care, you know, if you could be 45 years old and have six children and just be exhausted, and you have to have another. So I think it's really saying to women, you, your reproductive system is all that interests us, because that's the only thing that can't be put aside.
0: Fiona, what message do you
3: think a no vote would send or a yes vote?
4: I mean, I think um,
3: like I think back to, you know, almost exactly three years ago when the marriage equality vote Came in and I was sitting uh, in my at my kitchen table in Oxford watching it um, on RTE and feeling I could remember back when I was, you know, a twelve thirteen year old girl in the middle of nowhere in Tipperary, realizing that I really liked German because I really fancied my German teacher and thinking, wow, okay, what's that? And what it felt like for me that day to see that vote and to feel a kind of recognition that I didn't even couldn't even put words on that I hadn't felt before that. And I think I then try to transfer that to what it would feel like on Saturday for people who have come out and told their experiences of the Eighth Amendment um, and also for the people who haven't, who haven't been able to talk about it. And I think, you know, if we, if there is a no vote, which I don't believe there will be, but if there is, I think it just says to people, first of all, it says to, to all women, you know, we don't really believe that you are the authority on what you can and can't bear in your life. And then secondly, I think it says to women who've come out and spoken about what are sometimes called the hard cases, fatal anomalies or rape, say, we are really sorry for what happened to you, but you are the price that we're willing to pay to stop what we think are bad abortions. And I just think that would be devastating. Rona. Yeah, I mean, obviously I've dealt with
2: what a no vote will mean, but I think if there is a yes vote, you know, won't it say to all of the thousands of women who have travelled in such lonely, difficult circumstances, and all the women who've hidden at home taking tablets, doesn't it say to them... We understand, we acknowledge that you have been in really complex circumstances. We understand that life is complex. We acknowledge you. And from now on, we're going to support you. And to all the young women in our country who will face dilemmas, human life is full of dilemma. What we are saying to women is that we understand it's difficult and we can actually deal with it. We can discuss it, but we can also support you. Um, And that is just so important. And I think for so many women, tomorrow, if the vote is yes, I think they will feel they are accepted by their country. They will feel acknowledged. They will finally feel listened to. um, And we will finally start to really take care of women's health in a much more holistic way um, than is happening at the moment. So I think it will be a really, really important message for women, a message of acknowledgement.
0: Fiona, one of the... Astonishing things to come out of this campaign has been the absolute turnabout of male politicians, uh, our political leaders, mm. actually representing women and supporting them and sounding authentically supportive.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I suspect I may have caught Finnegale at this stage uh, because it's very uh, impressive. you know, not only coming out and speaking for women, but actually sounding like feminists, saying period, menstruation, pregnancy on the television and the radio. It's amazing. It actually is fantastic. But I would also say, you know, it's been super affirming to see leadership from women politicians. Like when I was a kid for a while, I thought Margaret Thatcher was amazing because she was the only woman politician I had ever really seen. And look at all the just awesome uh, role models that little boys and girls um, and kids who don't identify as either boys or girls have now, looking at this. I think it's it's brilliant. Rona,
0: mm. have you are you inspired by our male leadership?
2: I am actually, and I'm fascinated also because this is a very difficult issue and we know that politicians have another agenda which is to be voted in um, in the next round. So I'm very impressed that people have spoken out and they've taken a real political gamble. Um, particularly in different constituencies. Mm. For those politicians in an urban constituency, maybe it's a bit easier, but for politicians in a rural um, constituency, a lot more difficult perhaps because we do sense there is a difference in a potentially tomorrow's voting pattern. We will we'll see that perhaps. Um, I also think that we're seeing the officers stand up, you know, the and mm. um, the Tóniste, um, the minister for health. So, I mean, the offices of the state, the highest offices, have engaged in in terms of politics, um, and we see opposition as well. And we have, you know, um, so many of the different parties actually with similar message. So, Labour, mm-hmm. Sinn Fein, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fail. So, I think that to me has been very interesting. But I do have to, we do have to give politicians occasionally some credit. But it's a big gamble, and it was early on. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little easier now because so many have come out. But for the first politicians came out and stood up and nailed their colours to the mass. That's a big political gamble and they must be admired for that. Um, And I personally am very grateful that, you know, the Minister for Health Mm. and that the Taoiseach are standing up and leading on this and also refuting, you know, some of the um, comments that we made. I mean, this idea that if we retain the 8th next week, we can legislate for the hard cases. That's just not true. And that's just got to be knocked on the head. So that's why I think having that, those, you know, corrections um, from... Politicians to understand this has been Very really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Katha, are you jealous
0: of our marvelous male leadership? <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, I just wanted to say one thing, which is that I have uh, found people who are uh, they're like the Trump voters in that they they want to um, annoy politicians. They want to express their uh, their lack of uh, admiration. For the political class as a whole. Um, and that's what that, you know, join the revolution thing hooks up to is that, yeah, we're, we're the real radicals here. Um, and I think that is a little scary because in the United States, I mean, I have talked to people who said things like, yes, I voted for Trump because um, he made me laugh. And you just despair for democracy when people uh, are using such frivolous emotional – reasons, but also that express their disaffection with the whole system. Mm-hmm. Sort of like nothing makes any difference. I might as well do this. Ha ha. Um, so I hope you don't have those voters here like we have in the United States. Well, We have some politicians that do make us laugh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I think in general, sometimes
3: intentionally, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sometimes
0: not. Um, but but I think we are we are taking this particularly seriously. Yes. I, think yes. this, I think this is not about politics, actually. And, and there is a sense of a very serious electorate at work here. So, Catherine, once again, our, 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 our sympathies to you uh, <laughs> over your leadership. I
4: will bear them over the ocean. Oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Back to my people. <laughs> we
0: had to have an emergency podcast the day after Donald Trump oh. was elected, which <laughs> still scorches my memory. Rona, will you be able to watch the count? No,
2: <laughs> I've no courage. Um, I will. I'm sure I will. But um, I, I think for me, um, this is a very important moment in time in our history. It's a terribly important moment for women. And it's terribly important to me what the message will be to women um, tomorrow when people go to the polls. Um, and so I will find the next two days just personally quite difficult. Um, so will I be to hooks? Yes, I will.
0: Katha Pollard, I'm going to be reading your article in The Nation with great interest and I urge everybody to read some of Katha's poetry and indeed essays. Um, Fiona, you warrior, um, thank you for coming in and um, we'll be watching you over the next few days, I'm sure, in many media. Rona, thank you for your constant advocacy on behalf of your patients and the women of Ireland. Well, I hope you stuck with us to this point because I think that was interesting and even a bit of fun. That's all we have time for. A reminder that if you want to win tickets to see Amanda Palmer and Laurie Penny in the RDS this Saturday at 8pm, just send us an email telling us your favourite feminist quote and why you love it to the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Make sure you vote whatever way you're voting and we'll be back on Monday to talk about the result. The podcast is produced by Rosie Engel and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time.